Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. And welcome to Easter 2022. It's good to see your faces. Um, we had an Easter egg hunt with our family yesterday. Anybody do Easter egg hunt just a little bit early? Anybody? A few of you did. Um, we're, we're past the candy point, though. Anybody else past the candy point on this deal? No, a couple of you are like, nah, man, forget that. I don't want money. I want candy. Well, we're at the point where a nickel, a dime, you know, except we didn't have all the coins, so we did IOUs. I owe you a nickel, I owe you a dime. It's great. It's all fine. All of that was going great. You put the slips inside the eggs and they get hidden and stuff. We also dyed some Easter eggs. And so as the kids are going after it, they're thinking to themselves, I'm going after the plastic eggs and not the dyed eggs. We, anybody not want dyed eggs a year later in your yard? Okay, so I'm kind of here, and my wife's over here, uh, and I hear from, it it is a voice that sounds just like hers. She calls out to the kids, each of the dyed eggs is worth five bucks. (laughs) Who said that over there? I can't believe. So uh, last night after egg and all that was done, we're out $75. That's what I'm telling you, okay? (laughs) Like we had paid out some serious like all of a sudden Easter went from this is fun to, oh my goodness, that was some money right there. Uh, and, and it was hilarious. And our kids really enjoyed that part. Um, however, uh, it was a little bit of a surprise to, you know, that this kind of happened the way that it did. Uh, got to be a little bit bigger story than maybe we anticipated it being. And this is what Easter is about. It, it's, it's not about bunnies and baskets Um, some of you are going to eat really well here shortly. Awesome. Fantastic. All of those things. But Easter is about a story that is inconceivable and all of a sudden bigger than you could imagine. Surprising. And so today I want to ask three questions. We're going to be in the, in the gospel of Luke. If you're not sure where that is, um, uh, you can either, uh, if you're a user of the Bible app, you can open that app and find our live event. That'll make it easy on you. If you have a Bible that you're putting in your lap or you need one, there's one on the sides of the tech booth back there. But if you're going to uh, use a Bible you put in your lap, Luke is the third story of Jesus. There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, third book in the New Testament. And uh, we're going to be at the very, very end of chapter 23 and the start of chapter um, 24. And so there's three questions I think... Um, that we need to get to this morning, uh, um, all of which flow right out of this particular text. Uh, if you've been around um, our church family and done this at Easter, we did this four or five years ago where we did uh, these kind of questions, but we just want um, to point to this first. Here's the first question. Can I believe? In our day and in our age and in our unique kind of suburban, more intellectually skewed setting, I'm talking about us here, can I believe? Can I, can I put my trust in Jesus in the story of Easter? Can I believe without being an idiot, without being a fool, without looking like you've checked your brain at the door? Some people talk about this, um, and they talk about it in one of two ways. Oh, this religion, Christianity in particular, is a, is a blind faith, meaning I'm going to go on in faith despite the evidence. Some people say, well, it's not blind faith, it's a leap of faith. So little bitty evidence or no evidence at all, and I'm going to go on from there. But I think what you'll find is, as we look at the text here, that there is, for those who read it and take it seriously, it is neither a blind faith, there is stuff here to see, substance. 
nor is it a leap of faith. Little bitty evidence or no evidence from which you're going to go on. There is substance here that you can stand on. So here we go. Um, Luke chapter 23. I'm going to actually start back in verse 50. That's five zero. And then uh, read down through chapter 24, verse 1. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. So we got to pause and put a little context on this. Um, Jesus has been crucified, uh, Luke chapter 23, and um, uh, he has now died. Uh, Pilate is the Roman governor. We're going to read about him in just a second. The body is getting ready to come down from the cross, and they're going to put the body of Jesus um, in the grave. This is the scene where we are, okay? Um, Verse 20, uh, excuse me, uh, 52. Uh, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath day, uh, they rested according to the commandment. So Friday, Jesus dies. Saturday is Jewish Sabbath. So they rested Sunday morning, verse uh, 24 verse 1. But on the first day of the week, that Sunday morning at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. Can I believe? There's some questions that kind of come underneath this. Um, is this, uh, c- can, we, can we really put our trust in this without checking our brains at the door? Four questions. Um, we'll try to uh, do this relatively quickly because there's more to be seen in this story. But I want to give us a a place to say this is not blind faith. Um, We can see something here. This is not a leap of faith. There is a place to stand. Question number one, uh, did they go to the wrong tomb? Is it a fair question? Like, they didn't have GPS back then. You know what I mean? Like, maybe it's the wrong tomb. Anybody remember? uh, I know there's some tech nerds in the room. Anybody remember when Apple Maps came out? And what a disaster it was at first. You're like, no, this is the map for San Francisco. All I'm trying to do is get to downtown Houston. And you kind of had this weird thing, right? Steve Jobs is rolling over at his grave, all that kind of stuff. You're like, I can't believe that this is the case. Um, And and so some people think like this is that moment where they're having an Apple Maps kind of moment. Like, uh uh-oh, we are are in trouble here. They've gone to the wrong tomb. But but the deal is, is that uh, Joseph of Arimathea, it was his tomb, we learned from a different gospel. So he knows where it is. And there were women who specifically, who saw it, uh, verse um, uh, 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb. So, and these women down in in, uh, uh, verse 10, they've got names. Um, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James. These are, so we've got Joseph who has a name. We've got these women who have names. And so the deal is, is that these are eyewitnesses to the account. If you think that they went to the wrong tomb, you go ask Joseph, Joseph, did you go to the wrong tomb? Did you tell him the wrong place? Are you sure that was your tomb and you didn't like borrow one from somebody else? There's like wrong moment right there. This, this is the reality. And you can put all sorts of jokes in here, okay? Uh, you know, about not asking for directions and all this kind of stuff. Is it the women's fault? Is it the men's fault? Although everybody knows men in the room, a lot less inclined to ask for directions. Are you with me? We know where we're going, yeah? No, you don't. <laughs> we don't, which is why all the women are like, Oh my gosh. Did they go to the wrong tomb? The evidence points to they did not. 
Second question uh, goes something like this. Um, Did the body get soda? Look at verse uh, chapter 24, verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So they showed up ready to uh, prepare the body for proper burial, and uh, there's not a body anymore. And so did the body uh, get stolen? Here's the question. Did the body get stolen? By whom? Like who would steal the body? So you've got Jewish leaders who were trying to crush this idea. They were the ones who set him up, uh, made the political um, inroads happen so that the Roman, um, the Roman Empire and the Jewish leaders of the day uh, met in that moment to make sure that the crucifixion happened. And so these Jewish leaders had a particular, um, they had a particular stake in Jesus dying. The, the problem is, is that uh, as you read the Bible here, the rest of the Bible, the people who went to the tomb, they went on to bear witness over and over and over and over and over again. Man, this is like, instead of crushing this movement, it actually expanded the movement. The crucifixion and what happened here at the tomb didn't cause Christianity to go away. It caused it to explode all over the known world at the time. And so here's the thing. If you're a Jewish leader and you want uh, to stay in power and keep your political uh, uh, oomph and um, uh, all of the stuff that goes with that prestige and all that kind of stuff, and you stole the body, the easiest way to crush a movement about a resurrected Messiah is just to go get the body and pull him out and go, no, he's right here. You, You think he's risen from the dead Here's the dead guy right here. That I mean, they could have done it just like that. Did the Jews steal the body? That didn't make any sense. Secondly, how about the disciples? Did the disciples steal the body? The, um, for those of you who've been around church, can we just have a moment together? For those of you who have not, just listen in on this little conversation. Did the disciples have it together enough to do anything like that? Like, true story, in the Gospels, in the stories of Jesus, there were people who were under the influence of the forces of darkness, demonic forces, who had it together more than the disciples did. We know who you are. The disciples were like, uh, is there bread? They did not have it together, right? Okay, so that, that, that's kind of number one. Um, you're not counting on them to lead anything. Uh, to especially, you know, conspiratorially um, steal a body. Uh, secondly, uh, there was, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, there was appearance to multiple people, hundreds of people, even at the same time. So maybe they had some grand mass delusion where everybody saw the same guy doing the same thing at the same time, or not. And this is the biggest one for me. The reason why I think the disciples didn't steal the body is because nobody goes on to die for what they know to be a lie. There's 11 disciples, 10 of them were martyred, 10. The other one was exiled. Nobody goes on to die for something that they know to be a lie. Um, uh, third question uh, under this, can I believe, uh, it, 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 does it make sense for me to believe, it goes like this. Um, what, what, okay, so what if he didn't actually die? So here we go. Um, Verse 4, uh, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. So we got two angels here who show up at the tomb to meet these ladies. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. What, what if he didn't actually die? Uh, a couple of things on this. No, number one, nobody survives a professional execution, particularly crucifixion. The Romans were really good at this. 
They were really good at, at the brutal nature of this particular death. There were pierced hands and pierced feet that followed a beating so severe that people didn't recognize it. And the weight of the body hanging there as they're trying to catch a breath. And in John, a, a, a spear that to make sure that he was actually dead, they were like, oh, that guy looks dead. Let's go find out. A spear that went into his side and, uh, according to John, pierced in such a way that blood and water flowed down to the pericardium for the you medical people in here. Like it flowed. So, they were really good. I mean, nobody who picked up the body thought, oh, I think I see him breathing. I saw a twitch. Nobody's, he was dead. Professional execution. And then they laid him in a tomb. So for him not to have died, he would have had to lay in a tomb after being crucified and beaten beyond recognition, being pierced in the side, piercing the pericardium, laid in a tomb in a dark, cold place without medical attention and thought, oh, a good nap will do me some, and then off he goes. Like, not that make any sense. So you've got the physical obstacles to overcome, and you've got the, the circumstantial obstacles to overcome. He's inside of a tomb, so they've got a big rock in the way. Is Jesus, the pierced one, going to push that rock out of the way and then overcome the guards or slip past them? It doesn't make sense. So the final question goes something like this. Can I believe in Easter? Can I believe in this story? But, but what if I can't trust the Bible? So chapter 24, verse 8, they remembered his words. And returning uh, from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, Mother, James, other women with them who told these things to the, to the apostles. Verse 11, um, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. There's another great picture of how faithful the disciples were, right? Can I trust the Bible? Two people, or two kind of arguments underneath it. One goes, well, nobody really outside of the Bible talks about this. And that's just not true. Um, it, Roman historians do a lot because Christianity as a sociological phenomenon from their side, I mean, it took off in the Roman Empire. And so this particular guy named Suetonius uh, wrote about these Christians who, and I'm quoting here, believe a new and mischievous superstition. But really, I'm not worried about the folks outside. I'm talking about this right here. Can I trust the Bible? The veracity, I, I think the story itself actually helps us understand the veracity of the scripture. Why would they write it this way unless this is the way that it happened? On two particular fronts. Uh, number one, um, who were the first evangelists? Who were the first to tell the story that Jesus had been risen, uh, that, that he had rose from the dead? Who was it? It was women. And in first century Rome, women couldn't be witnesses in court. Uh, women could not uh, own property, on and on and on about you ladies and what you couldn't do. Um, and so um, th there's a guy from the second century. His name was Celsus. He was anti-Christian through and through. In fact, here's one of the arguments that he made. Um, the reason that Christianity cannot be believed is because women were the first to testify. And I'm quoting here. And you know that they are prone to hysterics. So if I'm going to like create, some of you are like, no, I'm not. If I'm going to create, if I'm going to create a new religion to, to make it palpable to first century people, I, I mean, I'm not going to use women as the first witnesses. That's not the story. And then secondly, on that, like the disciples, verse 11, um, these words seem like an idle tale. 
I'm going to write me in as a disciple as like a hero of this, right? Like, of course I believed, yes. And we went out with swords drawn and fire and stuff. Making heroic. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. So, so can I trust the Bible? Like, the, the thing is, unless, unless this is how it actually happens, you wouldn't tell the story this way. It's not a blind leap, folks. You don't have to jump over the evidence. The evidence is right there. You can see it. it is, it's not a, a, a leap of faith where you're hoping to find something solid. There is a place to stand. For some, that intellectual exercise, and, and we kind of do this every so often, but for some, that intellectual exercise isn't really the question. The, the question goes something like this. Okay, I can believe. I get it. But should I? Should I believe? And here, here's where I would say to all of you, those who have followed Jesus um, and have been at this a while, those who are exploring this and those who, got, uh, who, who are here because your family's here, should I believe? My answer is, man, you want this to be true. You do. You want this to be true. Because if Easter is true, then here are some things that are true. Number one, God is faithful. So b- back here... Uh, in, in, in verse 6, he's not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful man and be crucified and on the third day rise, and they remembered his words. What, Jesus, what he's referencing here is that Jesus three different times has told them, okay, team, here's our plan. This is what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get crucified um, at, at the, at the um, kind of crossroads of the Roman Empire and the Jewish powers of the day. I'm going to get crucified. Don't worry. Three days later, I'm going to rise. Three different times, not once. He didn't slip it in like late at night. Hey, y'all, I just want, like he told them three different times, plain as day. And because the disciples were so clear-headed on this, they remembered it, and that was their recitation. While they, no, this was not it at all. They're like, dude, we don't understand this at all. What are you talking about? Like, what, what we see, if Easter is real, then what we see is a God who is faithful. What he said was going to be true is true. What he said was going to happen has happened. If Easter is real, this is the case. And folks, this is, I mean, this is just a microcosm of the faithfulness of God. Why? Because back in the garden, at the very beginning of the story, in Genesis chapter 3, the third page of the Bible, God looks at the brokenness of the world and says, man, this is jacked up. I need to send someone to make this right. And so all throughout that story and the, the story of the, the kind of Old Testament Bible characters, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the story of the Exodus and the story of King David and the story of the that the Psalms tell and the prophets tell over and over and over again. They're just pointing to there's someone coming, man. There's a rescuer who's on the way. There is a Messiah who's going to show up and he's going to bring um, deliverance to God's people. What we see God has promised is what we see God has done. If Easter's true, then God is faithful. But also, God is just. What do you mean by that? It, it is, God is vindicating. If Easter is true, then he is vindicating the, in, the innocent and undoing the wrong that is in the world. Jesus died in our place. We were the ones who deserved to die. Jesus died for our sins, and so God raises the innocent one. 
and begins the process of undoing all the craziness that is in the world, all the terrible things that are in the world, all the injustice that is in the world. And folks, this is what we want. We want a God who doesn't look out on the world and on the craziness and on the injustice in the world. We want a God who looks at that and says, that ain't right. I want to do something about that. You feel that impulse every so often. A headline comes across, you're like, man, no, 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 no. God does too. So you want a God who's going to step into that and say, oh, no, 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 we're not going to continue to let this be. We're not going to. If you care about justice issues at all, you want a God who is willing to deal with them. If Easter is true, God is faithful and he's just, but he's also active. He's also active. Um, I, I just want to point back. On the first day of the week, early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. They thought they were coming to do one thing. But God had already acted while they weren't ready. He was already at work when they weren't prepared for it. They thought one thing was going to be the case and something else was the case altogether. God is active. Even when we don't see him, even when we don't recognize him, even when we don't know what's going on, God is at work. Our church family celebrated Monday, Thursday, a couple of days ago. And one of the things that we rehearsed during that time is kind of the Easter timeline. Monday, Thursday is when uh, Jesus gathered with his disciples, instituted communion, um, celebrated with them, and then pointed them to the things that would come. Friday, he dies. And then we, talk, we call it Good Friday because it's good for us. It was terrible for him, but it is, it is good for us because our sins are paid for. And then we talked about the reality. I don't know that anybody has a service about Easter Saturday. Because it's the place where all of the doubt and all of the grief and all of the hurt and all of the heartache and all the disillusionment and all the questions and all the deconstruction and all the worldview that you held so dear and gave your life to has now apparently gone away. I'm pretty sure I bet on the wrong horse. Anybody ever feel that way? But it's in that moment right there. We look, if Easter is true, then on Easter Saturday, God is like getting the machinery ready, man. He's getting things oiled up and ready. He's spinning this thing up because Sunday is coming. So in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the heartache, God is still at work. And that's not just true in this story. It's true in your story too. God is at work. He is active. Not just in the world, but in your world. Not just in their life, but in your life. He's at work, even when we don't see him. And lastly, if Easter's true, and again, we want it to be true because we want a God who's faithful, not capricious. We want a God who is just. We want a God who is at work and didn't just spin the world into being, and then we're like, good luck, kids. Lastly, God is compassionate. God is compassionate. He breaks brokenness. The empty tomb means that the final, that the things that are wrong in this world, ultimately, the brokenness that is in this world, ultimately gets broken. I was um, listening to uh, this week, uh, listening to Bono. Bono, any U2 fans in here? More than the 830 service, they were like, uh... Bono. Bono was being interviewed by somebody. They were talking to. Um, uh, they were talking about uh, a pilgrimage that he and his family made to the Holy Land. He took his family, 
And he said, there was a point where I kind of just had a few moments, a little bit of block of time, and um, I, I, I needed to go see Golgotha, and I saw it. I needed to see the place where they think the tomb was. I needed to see it. And here's how he described it. I saw the place that death went to die. Brokenness is broken. God is compassionate. But, and again, not just in the world, but in, in your life too. Because the story of Easter is not that, hey, you're kind of bad. Let, let's make you a little better. Your, your morals are out of whack. Let's make you moral. Let's let, hey, your manners are not very polite. Let's make you a more mannered person. The story is not bad people become good. The story is dead people live. This is the story of Easter. So you and I have an opportunity to experience the breaking of brokenness when we put our trust in Jesus and in the Easter story. But not just, not just that. But also brokenness has with it, it like as one of the outflows, one of the outcomes of that is shame. And so you've got this, these bags of shame you just carry around because of the things that you've done. And we don't have to look very far over our shoulder to be reminded of that. And so shame, then the voice of that, as it gets in your ear, shame is silence. Peter is the one, look at verse 12. But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter had every reason to carry shame. Just a chapter earlier, right before the crucifixion, Monday, Thursday, um, uh, uh, that evening, Jesus is arrested. Um, he is put on a just absolute sham of a trial before the Jewish leaders. Peter follows him, the Bible says, at a distance because we think that following at a distance is safer. It ends up in a courtyard where he's kind of within earshot of some of the craziness that's going on in the trial. And somebody comes up to him and goes, hey, man, weren't you with them? Peter's like, no, man, no, not me. You would think, Peter, disciple, yeah, let's do it. Yes, I am. And I bear my sword and let's fight. You know, he's like, nope, not me. Little girl comes up. I swear, I swear I saw you walking with him. Little girl, you don't know what you're talking about. Somebody else, hey, hey, hey. You, you talk like him. You're Galilean. I am not. With a curse, he says. Three different times he denied Jesus on that night. He had every reason. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. He had every reason to just be weighted down with shame, shackled to this baggage. Jesus silences shame at the empty tomb. Peter looks in, he's like, oh my goodness. I don't even, I'm marveling. I don't even know what to say. And lastly, he, he rewrites sorrow. God is compassionate in dealing with the brokenness in our world and the shame that comes along with it and the sorrow that is ours because we live in this place. Listen, the world is whack. It's absolutely true. And nobody's going to question that. Um, but he has a way of undoing our sorrow, the, the, very, the very sorrow that we experience. And he is rewriting. He is transforming it um, so that uh, our, our hope is actually greater um, than our fear. He did for Peter, and he will for you too. Um, Tim Keller, pastor in New York, says this, all of life's hardships are transformed. If the, if the tomb is empty, then all of life's hardships are transformed, and they are transformed to enhance our eternal glory. The things that we're going through right now, 
They're hard. They're real. Grief is real. Hardship is real. Persecution is real. Stuff is real. The tension that we feel in this world is real. The, the um, repercussions that come our way are real. All of that's real. But they are working. Je- uh, because Jesus came out of the tomb, they are working in us to make our glory. A hundred years from now, that much better. When we sang a while ago, children are singing and dancing and laughing. That, that's, what, that's what he's doing. God is compassionate, and he did it for Peter, and he did it for you too. So the last question is, how then? How do you believe? Can I believe? Yeah. Maybe that's your question, or maybe not. Should I believe? You want it to be true. Trust me, you want it to be true, because the story it tells is the best story. How then? How then do I believe? Two things. Number one, there is a personal encounter with Jesus. Like that, that is the basis of faith is a personal encounter with Jesus. Even Peter, it says, went home marveling what had happened. He wasn't there yet. It hadn't clicked for him. The light switch hadn't gone on. Just later though, in the chapter towards the end of, uh, of chapter 24, you can read, Jesus appeared to Peter. There has to be a personal encounter where all of a sudden what is being said becomes real. What, what uh, people are talking about and the picture that gets painted, you're like, Of course that's it. I see it. I see him and what he has done. There has to be a personal encounter um, with Jesus. It's not an assent to the facts. I believe this, check. I believe that, check. Okay. It is not, I'm emotional on Easter, and so I feel good. And it is not a decision to walk out of here and try harder, because that ain't it. That is not it. Faith is about a personal encounter with with the one who has been raised from the dead. And then, then what, what, what does that look like, though? So my brother, my little brother, anybody else have a little brother you're annoyed with? Thank you. Every, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Everybody under 16 is like, yeah. My brother has a PhD in aerospace engineering, which in, in most rooms, you'd be like, Dude, that's amazing. In this room, you're like, I know five guys like that. What are you worried about? (laughs) It's true. His specialty is orbital mechanics, which I got to be honest, I know absolutely nothing about. He makes sure that stuff spins around stuff that is spinning around other things correctly. I got nothing. I don't know anything about that. Please don't come up to me afterwards and try to explain. It's Easter Sunday. I don't want to know. The reality is, is that my brother has a PhD in uh, aerospace engineering and he is like orbital mechanics. That's his jam. Cool. Everything that I know can be summed up like this. Something of substance is big enough to draw something less than it into its orbit. That's what I got right there. That's what I got. I don't know how it spins. I don't know why they're attracted to one another. I don't know why they like one another. I don't know how, if it's uh, an ellipse or if it's a perfect circle. I don't know any of that stuff. I don't know about geosynchronous orbit. I don't know about any of that stuff. I'm saying terms that I've heard him say where I'm like, that's so cool, man. (laughs) Here's what I do know. The gravity of the one thing pulls the other things into its orbit. How do you believe The gravity of Easter pulls you into its orbit. 
the weight of what Jesus has done. He has died and he has risen. The faithful God, the just God, the active God, the compassionate God, that weight has drawn you in to its orbit. This is faith. You put your trust in Jesus. Your life orbits this expression of faith. At Oxford, there's a, there's a debate society, Oxford Union debate, really famous. Uh, it's everything that you can imagine, it being Oxford, it being England, it being debate, okay? S- super fancy hall, super traditional, you know, like they, they have a proposition and somebody argues that and they have the opposition and somebody argues that and you go through and there have been famous debates that have happened there, guest speakers who've duked it out about this and about that, important stuff, funny stuff. I mean, there, there, there's, you know, proposition op- and it's, it's a big deal, Oxford Union debate. But the question is, at least in my mind is, how do we know who won the debate? Anybody with me on this? Like I've been sitting here for an hour listening to y'all talk. How do we know who won? Here's the way that they decide. Who won? Either the proposition or the opposition. This, this is the door that you exit through. If you think the proposition won, you go through the Ides door. I mean, you literally get up and you vote with your feet. Whoop, right through there. If you think, nah, man, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm going through the no door. Then you go through the no door. You vote quite literally with your feet. And there's people standing there as they go by and they're like, tick. Click, click, and they get done. They're like, hey, 246 to 34. Oh, well, I guess the eyes have it. You vote with your life. And this is what's true of the resurrection. And this is what's true of the story of Easter. You vote with your life. Your life gets drawn into the orbit of what Jesus has done. And it reflects that. You vote with your life. And so if you're a follower of Jesus in here, the, the, th- this is kind of the rallying cry in this moment. Like This is the point where you're like, man, my life is absolutely in orbit around him and around this story. And I'm, I'm going to be a part of making sure that this story gets out because... I know, like, this is the thing that keeps me centered. It's the thing that keeps me going. It's the thing around which my life is going to be based because I know that there is no condemnation for those who are um, in Christ Jesus. And I know that no matter what happens, hell or high water or heaven's greatest joy, no matter what happens, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Jesus. This is my jam right here. This is, I have voted with my life. If you're a Christian in here, Easter is about... A rally cry. And if you're not a Christian in here, you're not a follower of Jesus. The, the invitation is to believe. Can you believe? Yes. Should you believe? You want to. How do you believe? You put your life in his hands and let him draw you into his orbit by letting him take over your life. Forgive you of your sins and give you a brand new kind of life. I'm going to pray, and uh, we'll have a song of response. I'll explain a couple of things here um, as you kind of settle in. If you're watching online and 
you want to um, have a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus, or if you're in the room and you want to go ahead and whip a phone out or a, uh, uh, some device right now, you can send an info to info, uh, an email to info at heritagepark.org. Info at heritagepark.org will follow up with you this week. If you're in the room and you'd prefer to use the card just to write something out, I have this kind of question. I'd like to be contacted about this. Feel free to do that. Put it in the box there at the back. Send an email right now. Use the card right now. Let's pray together and then we'll have a song of response. Uh, So Father, in this moment where we've um, thought about your word, where we've heard um, what you have said, where the things that are true in the Easter story have been laid out for us, where we've used our minds to think about what could be, where our souls souls have engaged to think about what we want to be. God, I pray over every single person here, every person, that their lives would be in orbit around you. And for those that are not, would you draw them to yourself today? Today would be that day. Thank you for Jesus who makes it all worth it. Thank you for the promise of Easter that transforms even the worst moments, even the hardest moments, the, the, um, the things that we never would wish on anybody else. You transform that for greater joy in eternity. Thanks for being at work even when we can't see. Do the things that you need to do in us here in this moment. Be at work now. And this is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.